1 Peter chapter 3, picking up in verse 18, this is where we ended. And look how Peter, right in the very middle of his epistle, points us back to, aligns us with Jesus Christ. Verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. Stop right there and eyes up here. I'm so thankful that Peter points us back to Jesus in the middle of his epistle, as he's now getting into the duty of the doctrine. Most epistles, Paul's and Peter's and James, they start with, the, they start with what Jesus has done that is the doctrine, and then they segue into the duty, what you and I are to do in response to what he's done. And lest we ever get into what we're supposed to do, may we always spend that time delighting in what Christ has done. And so in verse 18, he says, for Christ also suffered. And then he tells us why, once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The whole idea of Peter's letter is written to a people who are going through and experiencing and will only intensify great suffering. And Peter, knowing what is coming down the pike, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is preparing them, listen, not to protest against suffering, not to march against it, not to gather, not to sign a little addendum, and we're, we're out here getting petitions, we're going to protest this injustice against Rome. He's not teaching them how to do that, you know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, you know what? <laughs> I'm just, you know, put your helmet on. He says, Christ suffered too. The just for the unjust. Well, that's, you know, he should have signed a petition. You know, he should have voted, you know. He should have marched. He should have done something. There's, there's, there's a, he should have called a legislator, you know. And why didn't, and, and, and Peter said, no, no. No. You're, you're going to suffer. See, this is really important for American Christians to hear this. Only for the last 300 years have Christian Americans been hearing this. Okay, this gospel wasn't written to Christian Americans first. It was written to Christians who are suffering persecution, suffering injustice, suffering abuse, suffering imbalance, suffering. And while our country is, in my opinion, the greatest country ever, okay, in Jesus' name, by God's grace, thank you, Jesus, and, and we are in a slow descent, maybe fast in some people's opinion, suffering isn't an option, it's a promise. Whether you're European or American or Middle Eastern or Native American, or it's not an option. God knows that, Peter knows that, and last week we went through nine different reasons why we suffer. There are many more. Do you remember those nine reasons? I'm gonna go through them quickly. The first one was Adamic suffering. That means it comes from Adam, that we're all part of Adam's lineage. Adam suffered, he sinned, and now we're all suffering the fallout from the atom bomb. Is that funny? It's kind of funny. As a matter of fact, I was counseling with a some friends this week, and we were going through specific suffering. Like, what, what about this? Why does this, this happen? I said, well, for me, maybe, maybe there's specific reasons sometimes, but the way I like to look at the suffering that our world goes through is it is directly linked to Genesis 3, where there was a cataclysmic explosion. And the shrapnel is still, for 7,000 years, descending on planet Earth. And everybody is hit differently from the same explosion. And some people are hit worse. Have you seen people who suffer worse? You're like, why? Why so much death? Why so much problem and disease? I don't know if we're ever going to get a satisfactory answer to why. It's not even really necessarily a healthy answer. And I just look at the world and say, man, 
I know what Jesus has done. Because in Genesis 3, did that explosion happen? In Genesis 3.15, though, there was the promise of the hope of the deliverer, Jesus Christ. It's the proto-evangelium, verse 15 of chapter 3, where the mention of the gospel is first given to us. Right at the inception of the explosion, God says, yeah, but I got a plan. I got a plan. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. His heel will be bruised, but that's how humanity will be saved. And so when you find somebody with some shrapnel in their face or some suffering in their life, sometimes it's just because of of Adam and the situation we're in. There's also demonic suffering, spiritual warfare. We see that. There's familial suffering. We talked about that. Empathetic suffering. When everyone's just sad, there's things hurting around you, and it's not even your problem, but you're bearing that pressure. Mysterious suffering. You can't explain it. Then there's providential suffering. This is probably my favorite because God takes all of the suffering, and he actually makes it providential suffering, which means that he actually uses it for good. He accomplishes things in you during your darkest times that could not be accomplished in your best times. And he provides for you along the pathway. There's also collective suffering. This is when the people around us are going through physical, emotional, relational, spiritual suffering, all of that. And Peter doesn't tell us how to avoid it or how to organize or how to get away from it or resist it. Instead, he tells us how to trust God. Listen, serve others, deny yourself, and suffer well. It feels like I've been preaching this message for like six months straight. Why are you laughing, Rory? I mean, it just feels like it. I'm like, and I'm like, whoa, this, I could just use the same sermon notes every week. It's just the same stuff. So I, was, I just ended up, but I don't know. I find my life is just a series of just a variety of suffering. There's just differences. God meets us in those. And here's what I want to remind you guys of, because there's so many reasons why we suffer. Is it whose fault is it? Their fault? Is it Adam's fault? Is it demon's fault? Is it this person's fault? Whose fault is it? Eh, who cares? What's that going to get you? Here's a better question. Lord, how are you going to use this? How are you going to use this? Remember when Paul and Silas were imprisoned wrongly, Acts chapter 15? They were, they were, they were helping a, a little girl. Remember that little girl was being trafficked? And they helped her. They delivered her from demon possession, and they got arrested for it. It's crazy. So here they are, unrighteously arrested and beaten, and Paul and Silas decide in their suffering, what should we do? They do two things. They say, hey, let's pray, and let's sing some songs. Now, I can imagine young Silas like, oh, pray, sing songs. Yeah, okay, you know, good idea, boss. I, just, I don't know, maybe he's like, okay, whatever, dude. And they did it in the jail prisoners, in the jailer. They heard it, they saw, they witnessed and all of their lives were changed. You guys know the story. Read it later if you, don't, if you have time. When you suffer, we ask why. God's wanting us to ask what? Lord, what are you going to do? How are you going to impact my family? How are you going to impact this prison that I'm in? How are you going to drop chains off the people around me? How are you going to use this, Lord, for your glory? And then be excited about your suffering. Wouldn't that be crazy? If instead of resisting and rejecting, looking for a petition... I, I share this story often, and I hope you've heard it, and I hope you... Consider it in your own suffering. Fanny Crosby was an 18-month-old little girl. She had an eye infection back in the 1800s or so. No doctors, no good medical people were around. And and a traveling doctor came by and he said, well, he could fix it. And so he put some mustard poultices in her eyeballs and rubbed it in there to burn out the infection. And she began to scream and cry as an 18-month-old would, no matter what you put in their eyeballs. And 
Her mom began to protest and said, I don't think this is good. Can you stop? And he said, nope, can't stop. It's got to have its, have its way. And, and, it, and it was a, a, a false procedure. It was bad. And it actually blinded her for forever, permanently. And so she never saw it. She never remembered anything. And, and Fanny Crosby went on in her life to write upwards of 8,000 hymns. Some of the hymns we've sung over our Christianity which were written by her. And when she was interviewed before she died, someone asked her, said, if you could go back and just, man, sheesh. If you could just avoid that, wouldn't that, man, just have a normal life. Would you go back and change that? She said, no way. Because the first person I ever see is going to be Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean her life was easy? Does that mean there was no suffering involved? Does that mean she was skipping around as a seven-year-old little blind girl everywhere she went? No. I mean, even, it's just tragedy, suffering. And yet as she got to the end, she said, God knows. And God produced fruit from her. I don't know if you guys know who Nick Vujicic is. Nick Vujicic, he's a, um, a speaker, a talker. He's been to Ashland Metal Church many times. And Nick Vujicic was born without arms and legs. And he has gone on to take his tragedy at birth and put his eyes on Jesus. And now he has impacted millions and millions, if not billions of people in his life. Who listen, you wouldn't know his name had he been born right. Had he been born the way we want. Why, why? What was his parents' reaction? Oh, wow. What's your reaction when suffering comes your way? This is not okay. I resist. I reject this. This is not okay. Silas and Paul, this is wrong to be arrested this way. This is wrong to get this news. The doctor shouldn't be telling me this. This is not what I want. This is, this is not what I prayed for. And what if the Lord says, I know, I know, I know. For Christ also suffered. I know. And God reaches down into humanity and he holds the hearts of every woman, of every man that suffers. And he reminds us that it's not just about this life. Listen, it's actually not just about you. God is using you and your suffering as a platform to prove his goodness, his kindness, his grace, and his mercy. Peter actually tells us, we, we didn't read it this morning, but in verse 15 he says, but sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart and always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Who's he telling this to? To people who are gonna suffer people that he assumes in their suffering and in their tragedy and misfortune, listen, have hope. And someone's going to come alongside and say, what in the heck makes you smile right now? Why would you be smiling? What? I see tears too, but you're also praising. What does this? And it's the sanctification of Jesus. I trust in Jesus. I know what's going on. I've read the book. I'm not surprised when injustice and misfortune and sin and corruption happens around me. Darn it. I'm not even surprised when it happens from me. Have you guys stopped 
being surprised when you're kind of the one behind the problems? Anybody still surprised when you're behind the problems? Okay, your spouse isn't. <laughs> you know, unless you've been married for like eight seconds. God says, I'm going to use that. Don't be surprised by the troubles that you go through, as if some strange thing were happening to you. That's, that's quoting Peter. Don't be surprised. Matter of fact, remember when the children of Israel were led into their promised land, and God emphatically declared to them, it's Exodus 23, you can read it. He said, you know what I'm going to do? Here's the promised land. It's a gift to you. And as they peered beyond, they're like, I see some giants. There's still people living in here, God. And God said, yeah, I know. I left them there. Can you not do that, Lord? You know, And, G and he, God said to them in Exodus 23, he said, no, I did it on purpose. If you were to remove, this is his principle, if I were to remove all the giants from the land before you actually occupied all of the land, the land would become overgrown and inhabitable. This is just crazy. You have to like really drink some coffee and think this through. God said, I'm going to let you in a little at a time. As you grow and mature and take the land, I promise to you. Can't you just give it all to me at once? No. Can't you just take care of all the giants and all the problems all at once? No. It's a principle. And so God's not going to give you everything you want all at once. That's not good parenting. And he's also not going to remove the challenges that are in your near and your far future. Because in your challenges in the near and far future, God's going to accomplish in you the work that can only be accomplished through the giants that you face. The suffering. Anybody facing any, you know, need to raise your hands, but are you facing giants right now? You feel like giants are taunting you? You feel like things are, you feel like the flesh is rising up within you? The world of corruptions around you? You just feel like you're in a battle? Anybody feel like they're in a battle? Okay? Just so you know, it's because you are. You're in a battle. And when King David came to the battlefield, he was excited that he didn't miss the fight. And he had two reasons of logic. Number one, because he believed in God and his sovereignty and his ability to do what he said he was going to do. David wasn't a big man. He was the little guy. Remember when they were trying to pick the king and they looked at all the sons, the oldest to the youngest, and finally they ran out of sons? And Samuel and Jesse are like, I guess we got to go to the dog kennel, you know? And he said, oh, wait, I got one more, the runt. He's out back. He's with the sheep. It's not dances with wolves. It's dances with sheep guy. Because David was a songwriter, dancer. He's, you know, soft guy. And he's like, and Samuel knew it. He's like, that's the one. The one that knows God. The one that believes in God. And so David became a giant slayer, slaying thousands and tens of thousands. How would he do this? Was it because he got on the right workout program and started taking the protein drinks? You know, is that what he did? No, never. Did he put on Saul's armor and equip himself with the latest strategies of the world and read the church growth book and the seven ways to be successful? Is that what he did? No, never. David said this, I know who my God is. And he said this to the giant, you're on the wrong team. You just can't win. I don't have to worry. And then he said something else profound. He said, and God, historically, I not only know what's going on in front of me, but historically, God's been faithful. He's already delivered me, not once, but twice, from a bear and a lion. Christian, there are giants in your future, okay? It's not gonna, not gonna change. What do we do? You trust God's plan for the future. You rest in God's faithfulness for your past. He's done it all for you. 
Yesterday, I did a memorial in Walport on, on the beach. And it was with a mixed group of people, some believers and non-believers. And it was actually, I was told as I arrived there, it was actually semi-tense that they didn't want it to be religious. And I said, well, neither do I. So that's, so that's okay. I'll be fine. And, and this, this death was, was tragic. It was too soon. And I knew that that was a question going through people's minds. And yet, yet Kelly, Kelly Shearer, who had died the day before Christmas, he, I baptized him in October, October 16th, I baptized him at Night Beach, turnaround. And I was able to give his testimony to his family and friends and to people on the outside, people on the inside. And I was able to declare emphatically, like it says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And Kelly would love to see that his memorial is a bonfire at the beach. And we do this not ignorantly without hope, but with hope. And while the suffering was real and the tragedy and, and the giants were screaming at us to lose our faith, lose our minds, we can trust the Lord and speak grace and speak truth. Suffering is not an option. It is a promise you need to hear this over and over, lest when you be trialed and when you be challenged and when you go through another struggle, you conclude differently and act wrongly. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that Christ did these three things for us. And the last thing I want to point out again is that we might be brought to God, literally in the Greek, that there might be a special audience for you in the presence of God. Christ suffered so you could just walk up to God and get help in your time of need. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that. Here's the problem, not everyone believes that, not everyone does that. Reminds me of the story in Numbers 21 where snakes and serpents had come in and bitten the children of Israel because of their sin and the plague came in and they were bitten and they were poisoned. And all of a sudden Moses prayed and he intervened and God told Moses, take a serpent and put it on a pole, a brass serpent, and raise it up in the middle of camp and tell everyone that if they go to the middle of camp and look at it, that they'll be healed. Now, how many of you think that hearing that news in your tent, suffering from a real snake bite, when your best friend Joe comes over, hey, they got a serpent in the middle of camp, and apparently if you look at it, you'll be saved. Hey, they got a serpent camp. Can you imagine that? Like, a what now? No, I'm just, I know, I know, it's crazy. It's working, I've seen people, it's working. <laughs> Some people wouldn't do it. Can you imagine the tragedy? In your tent, bitten, suffering, dying. The good news is proclaimed to you. You can, you can be free. You can be set free. All you have to do is by faith believe the word that was preached to you. Jesus would say in John chapter 3, I am that serpent. And if I be lifted up, the Father will draw all men to himself. That was a picture. It was a picture of faith. It was a picture of the gospel. It was a picture of sin and the serpent and the snake bite and the poison that takes us out, but it was a picture of God making a way. And I imagine some people just robocop crawling, you know, their legs numb, just, just get me to the tent, you know, get me, get me to the center of camp. And they're looking at it with their one eye that still works, you know. I don't know how you guys read the Bible. I gotta use my imagination, it's kind of fun. And they would be healed. This is the good news. 
Some people would say this is elementary. And Are you bitten by a snake? Do you struggle with sin? Do you struggle? Okay, go to Jesus. Crawl, limp, run, whatever you got to do. That is why he suffered. Look at what it says in verse 18, the very final part. I want to make just a note here. He says, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. Christ's flesh suffered and died for our sins. He was not a sinner. It wasn't his sins being punished. It was our sins upon him. And yet he came to life and lived in the Spirit, by the Spirit. His flesh was put to death. And let me make the simple application for you and I. We know theologically what that means for him. But for you and I, in your flesh is nothing but death. And in your spirit is nothing but life. Here's the challenge. Sometimes we take care of our flesh, do we not? Just like a little bit. Like I slayed a bunch of it, but I got a little bit of flesh over here I just don't want nobody talking about. Just a little bit of stuff over here. I just, I'm going to keep it here. It's just my pet flesh. You know, we just pet it. Don't touch it. And we pre- the Bible says this, though. It says that the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. 1 John chapter 3. It says if we love the Lord, we'll keep his commandments. And the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. You know what's burdensome? Just so you guys know, in case you're wondering. You know what's burdensome? Is feeding your flesh. Giving your flesh what it wants on the daily. When your flesh is, I'll take some of that. I'll look at that. I'll go over here. You want to have a burden on you? Do that. You want to be set free like it says about Jesus Christ here and live in the spirit? Put to death your flesh. Anybody out there fighting right now? Fighting with me? I'm a fighter. I'm fighting right now. My flesh shows up every day. Jesus here was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Look at verse 19. We're going to get into some theological deep waters here, and I'm not going to be dogmatic, but I'll tell you what I think it means. Verse 19 and 20 uh, have led many scholars into confusion, at least with each other. It says, by whom also, speaking of Jesus, he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. Listen, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Stop right there, eyes up here. The first thing I want to say is this verse and this section is one reason why scholars don't believe that Peter actually wrote this epistle because Peter was an untrained fisherman. Peter didn't know how to write things like this. Peter didn't know how to go to theological depths. And so they say, this is too smart for Peter to write. It's way too smart. And yet, when you spend three years with Jesus Christ and then are inspired by him and filled by his spirit to be used as Peter did and given the revelations, I believe this is proof that Peter wrote this because Jesus called Peter and said he was going to do great things with him. Here's what it says, though. Look at verse 19. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient once the divine long-suffering in the days of Noah. Stop right there. Eyes up here. In Noah's day and in our day, there were demons that are fallen angels that oppress mankind. In Noah's day, Genesis 6 through 8, some of the demons were so bad that they did things that were detestable. And so God sentenced them early to the abyss, to the abuso. 
In Mark chapter 5, Jason Beal taught on that sermon. Those demons who were on planet Earth begged not to be sent to the abyss, a special holding place for demons before Jesus was raised from the dead. That's where the demons were kept, the worst demons of all. As a matter of fact, they're still there to this day in the abyss, in the abuso, in a part of Hades. And in the book of Revelation, we just studied this out. It says that in that area, those demons will actually be released for the final torment on planet Earth when things get super dark and gnarly. So what the Bible says here is that when Jesus died on the cross, Good Friday at 3 p.m., he uttered and finished his last breath, and he died. The question is, is where did Jesus go? What happened to Jesus' spirit? Well, Peter tells us that he went and he preached to the spirits in Hades or hell or Abraham's bosom or that holding place. Listen, that was before, we'll call it the Old Testament, before Jesus actually rose from the dead victoriously, leading captives free. Let me make sure you understand what's going on here. When Jesus died, and he breathed his last breath, the Bible teaches that on that Friday and on that Saturday and on that Sunday, he went and he preached, preached to the spirits. Not just the spirits, but we also know that he preached to the saints. Did you know that everyone prior to Jesus rising from the dead, paying for sins on the cross, died if they were in relationship with God in faith and were being held in Abraham's bosom? It was a holding place. We call it paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, okay? That was that same day, you're gonna be with me there. And those were where the saints were being held, David and Elijah and Moses and Esther, and they were all those who had died in faith waiting to be delivered. And when Jesus died, he went to the center of the earth and he looked around and he preached to the people that were there. He said, guys, guess what? I got some really good news for you. <laughs> and he preached to them, I'm gonna call it this, the message of victory. Message of victory. And he was letting those guys and gals know we're about to go to eternity with the Father. I'm delivering you who died in faith in the Old Testament. This is the end of the Old Testament. The New Testament is now upon us. And I'm taking you with me when I send out of here in the resurrection. He also preached two messages to a group of other people that were not the saints. Okay? They were the demons. And I believe the message was this succinct. He also preached to those demons, victory. I've won. You now have no power over anything that I have accomplished on the cross. And he preached victory to them. Not so they could repent. This wasn't an opportunity to be saved. It's too late. Once you die, you've already made your decision. Okay, it's not, this isn't a, there was no altar calls given during this preaching session. As a matter of fact, the word preach there is different than what a herald would do when he's preaching the gospel. And not only did he preach to the saints' deliverance and to the demons' victory, listen, he also preached to the demons, in my opinion, in my belief, limitation on what they could now do. Do you know that demons have no power over you if you're a Christian? All they can do is lie to you. All they can do is taunt you. All they can do is tempt you. Nothing formed against you shall prosper. The Bible says he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. And if you're a Christian and you call upon Jesus' name and you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, demons have to flee. Demons tremble. Okay? Demons believe in God, but they are afraid of Jesus Christ. And you call upon his name and you wield and yield that sword of faith and righteousness. And I believe Jesus was looking at those demons and said, hey, I just accomplished on the cross. The gift has been paid for in full. And now your job and my job, as we look back to Jesus and what he's done, is to live victoriously, to preach victory, and to suffer well. And he gives a proof text, Peter does here. The proof text is Noah. He gives a way throwback. He's like, like Noah did. 
If any of you are struggling right now, by the way, to live victoriously, to preach righteousness and to suffer well, think about Noah. You guys think Noah had a good, good job uh, when God called him? Remember Noah? He was the only righteous guy living the 1,600 years, by the way, after the fall of Genesis, after the creation of mankind. Noah comes on the scene, and God chooses Noah and his three sons and his family, and he gives him an assignment. He says, no, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to save the world through you. Okay, cool. What are we going to do? I need you to build a boat. All right, cool. What's that? Oh, it's this big, it's an ark, you know, it's this thing that's going to float, you know, when, when the rain comes. Oh, cool. What's that? Most scholars believe it hadn't rained at this point, that at night the dew would form and there was no rain. It hadn't happened up until God opened up the water table around the world in order to flood the earth. And so for 120 years, Noah and his family built an ark by faith. How many of you guys think that building an ark would have been easy? Like the Home Depot was like right across the street and Amazon.com was flowing. You guys think this would have been easy? Nothing easy about it. How about Noah's kids? You think they suffered? Little homeschool family, little weird family, you know? Like, why don't your kids go to school? Like, well, school's kind of messed up, you know, and my kids got work to do. They, they got chores. We're trying to build an ark. Like, oh, Google ark builders, you know. And he gives Noah as a proof text for living righteously, preaching victory, and suffering well. Now, if God came to you one day and gave you a task and gave you direction and then told you that in 120 years he's going to fix everything, how many of you guys upon that number would not feel better? You're like, 120 120 what now? 120 out, out, years. Wow, that's, that's crazy. Okay, so my whole life, my whole life is just going to be suffering. And he uses that as a proof text. For Christ, Peter's trying to tell the church then, buckle in. It's going to be tough. Look at how God allowed Jesus to suffer. He subjected him. To, he suffered once the just for the unjust. It wasn't even his stuff. It was your stuff. And God was faithful to Noah. Noah suffered and God provided miraculously. He goes on in verse 21. He says, there's an anti-type which now saves us, baptism. The picture of Noah being saved in the ark as the waters flooded over the earth is that picture of water baptism. He goes on to clarify. He says, it's not the removal of the flesh, the filth of the flesh. It's not just getting wet and getting clean. But the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stop right there, eyes up here. I guess I want you guys to really understand this. Baptism is so fun for me. We're going to baptize people on April 4th, Easter Sunday. If you haven't been water baptized or you know somebody who needs to be water baptized, we're going to be doing that on April 4th. I'll, I'll do it before then if you're in a hurry. Uh, let me know. We'll go to the ocean. Not today. And, and when, when we baptize people, here's the, here's the big idea. Is you're identifying with what Christ has done for you. He was killed on a cross, buried in a tomb, and rose from the dead. And so I want to make sure everyone understands that because it's not just the removal of the filth of the flesh. It's not just you getting wet. If I baptize you, you're just going to be a wet sinner still. It has nothing to do with you. Baptism has nothing to do with you. It has to do with your good conscience that comes from the resurrection of the dead. Your good conscience, your cleanliness, your righteousness, your acceptance before God isn't because you're wet now, but because you believe in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And that can be good news for you on your baptism day or on any single day where you identify with Christ and what he's done for you. Sometimes people will ask me, even after a baptism, a year or two goes by and they make some poor decisions and, and they get released from jail. That's funny. And they say, I wanna get baptized again. And I say, I understand. 
because you want to get close to the Lord again. You, you want to, ah, I want to, I want to do over. And I say, you know what would be more powerful? You know what would have more faith? You know what would be more pleasing to God? More pleasing than you going in and getting dunked again, which seems like he's going to be pleased in that? You know what would be more pleasing? Is as if you rested and trusted and had a good conscience in what Christ has already done. It's not about you. It's not about your righteousness or your unrighteousness. It's about him. He is enough. And I've talked people out of multiple baptisms more than once because I believe Christ is more pleased in your satisfaction in him than in your own efforts. It's a good conscience. I want you guys to see this. This is what he's saying here. Through the resurrection of verse 21, the very last part, he says, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's very important that we don't ever minimize or miss the resurrection of Jesus Christ because the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. It proves that he's God and who he said he was. It proves that the sacrifice of the cross was accepted by the Father. And it proves that sin and death no longer have any effect on me or to be feared. When you look at the resurrection, how are you going to have your good conscience given to you? It's by Jesus Christ and him alone. Next time you're struggling with a conscience issue, okay, just think about Jesus. You will struggle with a conscience issue. You, you'll, you'll have shortcomings. He goes on to say, not only the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, it's so powerful, who has gone into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Stop right there and consider what Peter is saying. Guys, Jesus Christ, who suffered for us, once for the just, the unjust, in order that we might be brought to the Father, but now through the resurrection, which isn't, if that's not enough, he says not only that, but he has now ascended into heaven. Seated, ruling, reigning, angels, principalities, having been put into subjection with him. This, just, just, just think with me. I'm not done yet. I'm going to open my Bible right back up. You're not getting off that early. What is Peter saying? Where's Jesus at right now? He's ruling and reigning. All the demons, the bad guys, all the angels, the, the good guys. Everyone in the whole, the whole world has been put into subjection to Jesus Christ. This is... Peter's best friend, his compadre in the flesh. They lived together, but Peter saw him die and suffer and rise and be glorified and be resurrected and ascend. And Peter's like, okay, you're all going to go through amazing suffering. I see it coming. I know mine is too. And what I want you guys to do is to follow Jesus Christ. Remember John 21? where Peter was trying to quit. He was trying to quit. Jesus had been raised from the dead. The resurrection had happened. The ascension, not yet. And Peter was having just the stinking thinking, doubting himself. And so Jesus cooked him some breakfast, fish and chips there on the beach. That was awesome. Read it, John 21. And then Jesus told Peter how he was going to die. And it was grotesque. He was crucified upside down. He told him, you're going to suffer. And so Peter's like, whoa, uh, what about John? What about John? What's John getting? <laughs> One of my favorite stories. Because Jesus just looks at Peter. 
And he begins to kind of get sarcastic. He says, what, what about John? Who cares about John? John's gonna get what John gets. And then he says this to Peter, what's it to you? Follow me. Oh, sorry, sorry. And now Peter, years and years later, right before he dies, looks to the church and he says, make sure you follow Jesus above all else. Yeah, but what about, what about John? What about Joe Biden? What about, what about, what about, what about? you know, have you, you know, what about, what about? And Jesus will just look at you, what? You follow me. You follow me. And, and here Peter later will say, guys, the, the, the resurrection, the ascension. He goes on his conclusion. I want you guys to see this in context. Therefore, verse one of chapter four. Therefore, the therefore is there for a reason. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself with this same mind. Guys, this is where you make a decision. You got a clean conscience? Good. Now you got to have a dialed in, clear, focused mind. Conscience is dealt with? Christ. Well, I made some mistakes. Christ. Well, I'm not perfect. Christ. It's not about you. It's about his resurrection and ascension. He is enough. Get over yourself. Therefore, having this same mind in you, arm yourself. That word arm is speaking of munitions and weaponry in battle, because we're in a battle. How are you gonna win moving forward? Arm yourself with this same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Stop right there and consider with me what Peter's saying. You're gonna suffer. You are suffering. Suffering's coming your way. What do we do? Arm yourself with this mind, because guess what? He, here's the benefits of suffering, by the way. This is the next chapter, chapter four. We're gonna get into it next week. The benefits of suffering, number one, the benefits of suffering is, is you're gonna cease from sin. The more you suffer on this earth, listen, you do have a choice. You can either become better or bitter. You can become helpful or harmful. You can become a sinner or a servant. You have a choice. But if you're focused on Jesus Christ, the more you suffer, this is what he said. Check that, this is actually good news, by the way. This is great news. The more you suffer, the less you'll sin because the pull of sin will have less effect on you. When you get your bell rung a time or two, when you go through a knothole backwards, when life disappoints you and your eyes are on Jesus, the sinful tendencies of this world lose their grip. This is not Christianity 101, by the way. This is like Christianity 303. So write some notes down, go take a nap, read them later. Your suffering, I'm gonna read it to you again. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Why? Verse two, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. In your journey right now, moving through life, have you spent seasons of time living for your own selfish interest only? for your lesser thrones, your temporal kingdoms. Have you done this? I have. And as I suffer in the flesh, those lesser thrones, those temporary kingdoms, they become less and less appealing, 
less and less for me to walk in. And this is the blessing that God gives us in a world that is promised suffering. It's not optional, it's promised. What's God doing in your life right now? He wants you to be able to say, you know what I do? I live for the will of God, not my own will. Now you're the 9 a.m. service, you guys are pretty cool. But I want you to ask yourself that question right now. Don't raise your hands, don't look at anybody else. Are you living for God's will or your own will? I'm gonna read it to you here because it's pretty, pretty serious. Verse two, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. To me, this is like, it, it's the bullseye. What are you doing on Monday? I'm gonna live for the will of God. What are you doing on Tuesday? I'm gonna, I'm gonna live for the will of God. What are you doing in April? I'm gonna live for the will of God. How did you get there? Uh, crash and burn a few times. <laughs> Suffered. Totally blew it. Just kind of a train wreck, if I'm honest. Just tragedy after tragedy. But eventually I got to the point where Fanny Crosby would say, no, I gotta see Jesus. That's what I'm all about. How'd you get your faith so pure, so right, so beautiful? Pain, suffering, difficulty, chaos. Wow, okay. Is your church growing? Yes. That, that kind of message doesn't really attract people unless they're authentic and real. Guys, there's, a, there's a, a benefit to knowing this. Verse three, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Stop right there. He, he, he's not a Gentile. Peter's not. We have spent enough of our past lifetime ruining our lives. I like how Peter throws himself into that, like, accusation, that confession. It's like, yeah, dude, knucklehead. And I want to live the rest of my life for the will of God, not for my own fleshly interest. Now, if you guys knew that on Friday, your car was gonna be destroyed, okay, totaled, landslide, smudged, you knew that on Friday emphatically, like while you slept, you know, somewhere, just Would you go to Super Suds tomorrow? Drive through and get it all cleaned up? Would you schedule an appointment at, you know, PJM or Steen's and get a, a tune-up on Wednesday? Well, I gotta get this thing running right. It's gonna be demolished on Friday. You, you wouldn't. You would grab your belongings out of it and take a few selfies in front of it. You, you would, you know, you wouldn't, because it's temporary, it's being, it's not, it's not gonna last. There are things in our life right now, where, oh, this is so good, and the Lord's like, eh, eh, eh. it's not gonna last. And here's the, the crazy part, while God can tell you and tell me the truth, sometimes it's a few laps around the block of suffering that finally gets our attention. And this world is full of suffering. So don't resist it. Don't resist it. Bear fruit in it. Sh Let God use you to shine his truth while you're like Paul and Silas, chained to the depths of despair. Everybody suffers, by the way. Did you guys know this? I, I'm gonna, I, there's a, a few people here, a few dozen people. You're all my friends. You're all Christians, right? You're gonna suffer. Okay? It doesn't matter. I could, I could go to any group of people in the whole world and preach the same message too. 
What you do with that suffering, though, is largely different depending on what book you're reading. He goes on to say this in closing. For we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And he lists these activities. There are challenges in that culture, challenges in our culture. I'm gonna go through those next week, one at a time, but he says in verse five, they will, verse four, in regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to the men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. Last verse, and we're gonna go through this uh, next week. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. This is the best time to be alive in Christ. To let the Lord sift us, to let the Lord shake us, to let the Lord wake us up that we would be the church God wants us to be. I only listed nine areas and ways that we suffer. You're gonna suffer. Your suffering might be multi-layered. A lot of different flavors mixed in one. Your suffering might not be other people's fault. It might actually be your own fault. And yet God promises that through that suffering, he will accomplish his will. I'm gonna ask you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes as we give ourselves to the Lord and ask him to produce fruit in our hearts. Lord, in Jesus' name, we thank you. We love you. We honor you. And Lord, we give our lives to you because you first gave your life to us. And if you're here this morning and you wanna give your life to Jesus Christ, you're not a believer yet but Christ is moving in your heart. Maybe you're at home watching, maybe you're here right now, and you would say, I want this one who died for me to be my savior. I need to be born again, forgiven of my sins, regenerated. If that's you, if, if God's doing something in you right now, you feel your heart racing and your spirit connecting, would you just raise up your hand by faith in Jesus' name and let the Lord do a work in you? In Jesus' name, I see some hands going up in Jesus' name. Lord, you bless those who are raising their hands. They're crying out to you, Lord. A new work being done in Jesus' name. Would you bless us, Lord? Have mercy on us. You can put your hands down. And if you're going through suffering right now, if you're battling and you want to suffer well, and you would ask the Holy Spirit to anoint you, that you might cease from sin and battle better, would you raise up your hand? Arm yourself with this mind. Lord, would you arm us? If you need your mind to be set on the things of God, raise up your hand. Lord, my hand is up too. I repent. And in Jesus' name, would you bless us, Lord, and set us free. Do a work in us, Lord. Do a work for us and do a work through us. We ask all these things, Lord, for your glory and for others' good. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen and amen. God bless you guys.